Well, if you'll take your Bible and turn over to Matthew chapter 6, we will pick up where we left off uh, the last time we were together. Matthew's Gospel chapter 6. And again, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. In particular, we're looking at the uh, what's called the Lord's Prayer. And we are to that section in verse 13. And we're going to look at verse 13. We're going to look at that verse. We're going to kind of talk about what that means because it's really important. And then we're going to look at two other things as we close this out. Because you know, remember, this prayer began as a model prayer of Jesus to his disciples. And it began with our Father in heaven. And before we finish tonight, we're going to ask and answer, why not our mother in heaven? Why not? Because there, there are some in the evangelical church, some in the church maybe I should say, more liberal-minded or that, that it's fine to pray our mother. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that because it's really important because we, 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 live, we live in a world <laughs> we live in a world where to restrict a prayer to our Father is, is, is too repressive and, and too restricting. We need to, need to be more fair. And <laughs> I'm being facetious here, okay? But, uh, and so to say that you can only pray our Father, that's too binary. That's, that's too restrictive, you see. But we're going to look at that. And so uh, let's start, though, with verse 13, and we'll, uh, we'll put all this together. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, as you look at that, I want you to think with me, okay? Try, try, try not to be distracted. Try to pay attention. Try to focus in on this because it's really important. If, if you're a Christian, this is really important, okay? This is a model prayer that Jesus gave for his disciples to pray, all right? And so Jesus is saying, here, he's saying here, his disciples, here's how you should pray, okay? Now, when you read this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that should fire off some questions in your mind, okay? And, and they might sound like this. Why would we need to pray this? Why would, we, why would Jesus say, here's, here's part of a, a good way to pray? Why? Because it says, and lead us not into temptation. That brings to the second question. Why would our Heavenly Father lead us into temptation? Why? I mean, think about that for a minute. Why would he do that? And then you need to ask, would it be consistent with the character of our Heavenly Father to lead us into temptation? Hold your place where you're at and flip over to James chapter 1. All right? Hold your place and turn over to James chapter 1. We're, we're, Jesus is saying, and l- pray, and lead us not. Talking to the Father. Father, lead us not into temptation. <clears throat> why, why would we pray something like this? Would, would our Father in heaven even do this? And when you look at James chapter 1, verse 13, you would see that he doesn't. Okay? Um, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Then it goes on, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So when you read that, to think that God would lead us into temptation to sin would be contrary to his character. So one other question. In light of James 1.13, what are we to make of this part of the Lord's Prayer? How are we to understand when it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? 
Now, I want you to know this is one of those perennial questions that comes up again and again and again. In fact, if, if a person was to closely read the Lord's Prayer, to closely study the Lord's Prayer, it is inevitable that when they get to this part, these, these questions are going to go off. It's going to be like, well, wait, wait a minute, why, why would God lead us in temptation? That doesn't seem to make sense. So this is a perennial question that will come up again and again. It may be something you thought about before, and maybe you, 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 know, you kind of got it settled, and then, and, and then it come up again, and you thought, now, wait a minute, what, what was it again? Or maybe some people you know, maybe you, somebody you know uh, thinks that God leads us so that we'll be tempted to sin. So if you listen closely tonight, we're going to find an answer for this, a, a clear answer that help us understand this. The key to understanding, verse 13, is that this phrase, in fact, the word temptation, when it says, and lead us not into temptation, has two meanings. Okay? The, the, the key to understanding this is knowing first that the word temptation has two meanings. Number one, it can speak of an enticement that has the goal of causing a person to sin. Now, that's what we often think of when we hear the word temptation. It is this enticement, this lure that's hanging out there that, that is enticing us or tempting us to sin. Okay? That's one way. That's one way that this word is used. But, it can also refer to a test or trial of the validity of a person's faith. All right? So understand those two things because if you don't understand that, you'll lose the key. Okay? This is the key to unlocking verse 13. The word temptation has two meanings. One, you know, this enticement to call, that causes somebody to sin. Or number two, it's a test or trial. Notice that word, test or trial of the validity of a person's faith. In other words, in other words it's it, like a, a trial that somebody would go through to, to, to see do they, do they, where, where's their faith lie. Is it really in God or is it in something else? You see, This word that, that the English translates, we have temptation. The original Greek word occurs 21 times in the New Testament. And 20 of those appearances have the latter idea of testing and trial, okay? So the word shows up 21 times in the New Testament. 20 of those have meaning number two, all right? And one of those 20 times is found here in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. Or another way, we could say it this way. Let me, let me it could say this. Lead us not into temptation is to say this. Father, do not allow us to come under the sway of temptation that will overpower us and cause us to sin, but rescue us from the evil one. Okay? So let me, let me say it again. When, when, when Jesus says, pray, lead us not into temptation, it is to say this. Father, do not allow us to come under the sway of temptation, testing, trying, that will overpower us and cause us to sin, but rescue us, rather, from the evil one. That's, that's really what this is saying. But even that brings up some questions. For example, 
doesn't the scripture does, doesn't the scriptures teach us that trials are good for us? Uh, take take your Bible and turn back over to James chapter one. All right, now follow me because I've got a few verses to look at tonight, and I want you to look at them with me to help you. James chapter one, verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Same word, okay? It is the same Greek word, but here it is translated trials. Again, testing and trying of of the validity of a person's faith. In other words, that test that says, where is your faith really? You You say you trust in God. You say your faith is in God. Now, here's a trial to, to, to determine whether you really do or whether you don't. And when that trial comes, notice it says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So, so the Bible does teach that trials are good for us, uh, that they are necessary, really the necessary for the health of our souls. So you should ask, okay, well then if it's good for us, why should we pray not to be led into them? Okay, see how interesting this is? See how we need to think about this rather than just praying it and, and we don't even know what we're praying, you know? So we should pray, lead us not into temptation. But wait a minute, these are trials and testings and they're good for us according to the Bible. But if they're good for us, then, then why do we pray not to be led into them? Okay, let me give you what, see, I'm, I'm always hesitant to say that. I'm always hesitant to say, I know the answer. <laughs> So I'm going to say it this way. The probable answer, the probable answer is this. This is a prayer that we may overcome temptation, not avoid it altogether. Okay, I'm going to explain this in a minute, okay? But it's, the probable answer here is how to understand this would be, it's a prayer that we, not, that we may not be overcome by temptation. It's not a prayer to avoid it altogether. Or to put it another way, okay? not that we, it's a prayer not that we be delivered from all temptation of testing and trying since it's necessary for the health of our souls, but rather deliver us from the overpowering temptation, recognizing that we are weak and liable to fold under severe testing. Now, I thought about when I, when I wrote that sentence down, I thought, there might be some and go, what? We're, li- we're weak and liable to fold under severe testing? Yes. Think of, think of the apostle Peter, right? He, he folded under severe testing, trying, okay? He did. And then notice this verse in Matthew 26 and 41. Turn over there with me. Matthew 26 and 41. Jesus said something in the garden to his disciples when he was suffering and praying and sorrowful and troubled. In Matthew 26 and verse 41, he tells his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that that phrase, enter into, we see it again there. Okay. Enter into, lead us not into in the prayer, but enter into is to entertain and consider the prospect of giving in to sin. 
And so I think I, I, I copied this down because I thought I can't put, I can't come up with anything any better than this. D.A. Carson in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a paragraph, and this will help, I think, bring clarity to why we would pray this way. This petition is a hefty reminder that just as we ought consciously to depend on God for physical sustenance, which is give us our daily bread, so also ought we to sense our dependence on him for moral triumph and spiritual victory. Indeed, to fail in this regard is already to have fallen. For it is part of that ugly effort at independence which refuses to recognize our position as creatures before God. As Christians grow in holy living, they sense their own inherent moral weakness and rejoice that whatever virtue they do possess flourishes as the fruit of the Spirit. More and more they recognize the deceptive subtleties of their own hearts and the malicious cunning of the evil and fervently request of their heavenly Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Man, that's great. That is great. That, that, that is, you know, this, the, as, as Christians grow in holy living, there's this, this, this deeper awareness, this deeper sense of reality of the deceptiveness of our own heart. How tricky it can, you know, can be. I mean, we, we, we think, we, as Paul said, you know, be, beware lest, you know, lest you think you stand, lest you fall. You know, that, that's that same idea. And so this prayer is, a, is an, this part of the prayer is an honest, honest request and, and recognition of, Lord, without your help, without your help in this, in this area, I could trip up big time. I could fall big time. I could get swept up big time. And so it, it, it's rather than, you know, some, 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 might, some might look at this and go, oh, my goodness, you've got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. You, you don't have to worry about these kind of things. Oh, my goodness, yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. We need help. And so that... That is, that is the help that we are asking for. And, and so I guess the question is, does that help you? Does that, does that help you? Hopefully it does as you, as you read this, lead us not into temptation. See, again, I go back to, as we talked about the last time, really paying attention to what Jesus tells us to pray. I mean, out of all the things that he could have said pray about, he picks these things. And, and as you look, as we look at them really closely, we begin to realize, wow, I see how important this is. No wonder he tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation, because we're, we're vulnerable, we're, we're weak, and so we, we, need, we need help outside of ourselves. So before we move on to the next turn here, anybody with any, any thoughts about that? Any questions, any thoughts about that? Anybody? All right. Why does Jesus tell us to pray our father and not our mother? Uh, there, there, there is a website you can go to. It's called Christians for Biblical Equality. Watch out. <laughs> Watch out for the word equality, folks. Watch out. Because that, that is one of those buzzwords right now. Equality, fairness. And, you know, it's like if, if you're, you know, my goodness, you're a monster if you're against equality, you know. You're a monster if you're, you know, against equality. Watch out. Watch out. Don't, don't swallow the Kool-Aid, Okay. There's a website called Christians for Biblical Equality. 
CBE. It is a nonprofit organization of Christian men and women. That I'm reading their their okay, I'm reading their 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 site. Who believe that the Bible? I couldn't help but laugh at this. They their organization of Christian men and women who believe that the Bible properly interpreted. I like that phrase. Properly interpreted according to who? <laughs> according to who? That's like reading the newspaper and it it says experts say. Who are these experts? Who are they? You know. Just watch out. Watch out when you headline Monday, you know, New York Times. Um, uh, Biology, biology cannot determine male or female experts say. In the New York Times. I mean, for for, for hundreds of years, doctors have been going, it's a boy. (laughs) It's a girl, you know. And now we're being told, Experts say, oh, no, you, you can't really tell by biology. Experts say. And so here in this, in this that we're reading, it says the Bible properly interpreted teaches the fundamental equality of men and women. Now, at, at first we go, okay, who, who, who would disagree with that? Who, you know, you, you know, in this culture, you get your head blown off for disagreeing with that. I mean, they'll eat you alive if you disagree with that. So then we have to ask this question. Equality in what sense? Certainly, both men and women are created in the image of God. We both bear the likeness of our creator. But the Bible also teaches that there is a difference in our roles as men and women. That brings us to, and I'm kind of going to lead into explaining why it's father and not mother, okay, and why some are suggesting that we need to include mother. There are some within the church who hold to a view called egalitarianism, okay, egalitarianism. It's another word for equality, but here's, here's what, it, what it means fundamentally. There are those in the church who hold to a view of egalitarianism meaning that there's no unique leadership roles in marriage or in the church. In other words, in the church, women can hold whatever role a man can hold from the egalitarian view, Uh, that there's no distinction of roles within the marriage. This idea that the the man is the head, as the Bible would teach, oh, no, 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 that, that will not fit in the egalitarian plan. And so just be aware that there are some in the church who hold to an egalitarian view. The other view, which is the view, let me me say it this way so I don't go too far here, is the view that I would hold because I believe it is the biblical view, and that is the view of what's called complementarianism. Complementarianism is a combining in such a way, the, the, the God creating man and woman, combining in such a way as to enhance or emphasize the qualities of each other or another. Let me give you a paragraph uh, of what, here, here's, a, I think, a good help of what complementarians believe. Complementarians believe that God created male and female as complementary expressions of the image of God. Male and female are counterparts in reflecting his glory. Having two sexes expands the view. Though both sexes bear God's image fully on their own, each does so in a unique and distinct way. Male and female in relationship 
reflects truths about Jesus that aren't reflected by male alone or female alone. And that is why there's the combining of the two. A shorter definition is this. Complementarianism is the view that male and females complement each other in their different roles and duties. So there's the, within the church world, I'm not talking about out, outside, I just want to talk about the church. Within the church, there are two different views, the egalitarian view and the complementarian view. And we hold here to a complementarian view. However, those who hold an egalitarian view bristle at the gender distinctions within the scriptures. And that is why there are now today what are called gender-neutral translations of the Bible, where they have taken male-oriented words. Now, let me give them to you. They've taken these male-oriented words, man, father, son, and brother, and he, him, and his, and they have changed them in the gender-neutral Bible to read person, parent, child, friend, and they. But now listen, you, you might say, well, is that, is that a big deal? Is that really a big deal? They have changed the words. Now listen, though the original language used a masculine singular pronoun. In other words, our English translations were based upon manuscripts of the original language, whether it be Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. In those translations, in, in, in those original languages, when you find man, father, son, brother, it, it, it's not person, parent, child, because the original language used a masculine singular pronoun. It's no surprise then that God's identity as father would be in jeopardy, you see. For, for, for among the egalitarians because it's like, Father, that's the, whoa, what, what, about, what about mother? We, we need equality here. What about mother? There's a book on uh, the CBE site called, titled, God, a Word for Girls and Boys. And so let's take a moment to see what this book, in the introduction, here's what it says. Masculine God language hinders many children from establishing relationships of trust with God. In addition, calling God He causes boys to commit the sin of arrogance. Calling the supreme power of the universe He causes girls to commit the sin of devaluing themselves. For the sake of these little ones, we must change the way we talk about God and about human beings. Now, there, there's the introduction of the book. There's the reasoning. You know, this, this, this whole idea of calling God Father and, and He just messes kids up. Just messes them up. Now, now TV doesn't. Uh, uh, you know, violent games doesn't. Uh, you know, uh, drugs don't. N none of those things do. But referring to God as Father, whoa, we got to put a stop to that, you know. Wow. But someone will say, and they do say, by the way, here, you've got to listen to the arguments, you've got to read their arguments to understand where they're coming from. They would say, doesn't the Bible occasionally use feminine language when it speaks of God? So let's do a little tracking here. Take your Bible and let's do some tracking, okay? Let's start in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 18. I want you to see these verses because 
the egalitarians who say that we should also pray mother um, and take any of these male references out of the Bible and change them, uh, look to verses like these. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 18. And they say, look, looky, looky, looky at this, though. And so let's looky at it. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 18. Now, we're looking for this feminine language here, okay? You were mindful of the rock. Now, this is capital rock, you see, capital R, the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. He's talking to the people of Israel about basically they've just forsaken God. And so the imagery that's used here is a a feminine language of, of giving birth, okay? So women do that, not men. Okay, so, so egalitarians would say, see, see, it, 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 it's, it's, it's speaking of God as a female, as a mother. Go to the book of Job next, okay, book of Job, Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38 and verse 29. Job 38 and 29, from whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? This is speaking about God, okay? This is just imagery that's being used of um, the, the mighty works of God in creation. And so notice that, that feminine language, womb and given birth to again, okay? Uh, Isaiah, now, Isaiah chapter 66. Got, got two more here, okay? Isaiah 66, egalitarians look at these verses and say, see, see, we told you, we told you that... that God can't be restricted to a male or father. It can be female too, mother. Isaiah 66 and 13, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. There's that mother language. And so it's God speaking. It's one who, whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You know, at Galatians we see, see, God's comparing himself to a mother. Okay, one more, Hosea, Hosea chapter 13, Hosea chapter 13, one more here, okay, Hosea chapter 13, verse 8, Hosea chapter 13, verse 8, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed her cubs, her, see, her, I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Now, I just want you to stop here on this one, okay? Just stop and use your biblical common sense, all right? Egalitarians would, this is one of the verses they look at, and they say, see, it says, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cups. Goes, okay, well, does that mean that God's a bear? That must mean God's a bear because it, it speaks about being robbed of her cubs. It, so not only is it God's a mother and female, well, he must be a bear too. And then... In the rest of the verse, it says, in there, I will devour them like a lion. God must be a lion. See how stupid that is? See how stupid that is? See, egalitarians will look at these verses, and they do. They look at these verses, and that's, this, is how, this is how they build their case, okay? Listen, the Bible sometimes refers to God with literary devices like metaphors and similes that do include feminine figures of speech. We just looked at them. No, there's no secret here, okay? The, the Bible uses f- feminine imagery sometimes to speak of God. But now listen very closely. 
These feminine metaphors that we just looked at uses verbs to describe God's activities. They never use feminine nouns when they describe who God is. Okay? What we just looked at are, are verbs, action verbs, to describe God's activities, not to liken God to a woman. No, no. It's verbs to ways, metaphors, similes to describe God's activities, but they never use feminine nouns when they describe who God is. The one we looked at in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which says, now, I give you birth, is a masculine participle in the Hebrew language, not a feminine one. Okay? So, is it okay? Is it just okay, you know? Let's call God mother. What's, what's the big deal? Well, why, do we, why do we make waves? Why can't we all get along, you know? And just, you know, if, 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 if this person wants to pray, let's say somebody came to Sunday. You know, Pastor, I would like to offer a prayer, and I feel like it would be appropriate that we, we, we also pray to our, our mother. And, and I, I, I go, one of two things I would either say, you know, well, I guess we, we need to all get along. All get along, I guess. I mean, I don't see harm in it. Or I could say, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Not happening. <laughs> and so is it a big deal? Is it a big deal? Or should we just all get along? Calling God mother is changing God's own description of himself in the Bible. So it is a big deal. The Bible gives no justification whatsoever for calling God mother mother no matter no matter how much pressure <laughs> no matter how much talk of equality and fairness the bible gives no justification for calling god mother it's it is call it would be calling god by a name that he has not taken for himself and i think serious biblically minded christians are going to care about this other people would hear this you know there could be you know people sit and listen this night and go, boy, you seem all worked up over that. <laughs> well, yeah, I am. I am worked up over it, you know. I mean, Bible's either true or it's not, you know. And, and God is either father or a lion or a bear or mother. Which one is it, you know? Can we all just pick what we want? No, no, there's a, there's a standard. God, God's word is a standard. And so God has not called himself mother, our father, which are in heaven. One last thing, got five minutes to deal with this, and Sherry brought this up a few weeks ago. Um, in, 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 at the end of the prayer, at the end of the prayer in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in some Bible translations, the, the, this prayer ends with these words, for thine or for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I, I read from... Uh, I have, I have a number of different translations, uh, but the one I read from, preach from, is the English Standard Version, and that phrase is not in the English Standard Version of the Bible. So that brings the question to us. Why is it not in modern translations? And that's, that was Sherry, Sherry was asking that question a few weeks ago, and we said we're going to double back and, and talk about that. Why is it not in modern translations? Why is it in some translations, the, maybe an older translation, but why is it not in the new modern translations? And, and I, I don't know how to put this any other way, and we've talked about this before on numerous occasions, 
And so I've only got a limited amount of time to explain this, but here's the answer. It does not, this phrase does not appear in the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, okay? It does not appear in the oldest manuscripts. Now, what does that mean? Um, Let's just, you know, let's pretend for a minute. Let's say that I found a manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew in in the Greek language, Greek, Aramaic, and... um, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to translate the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to translate it into a language, the English language that we can understand. And I found a manuscript that, is, uh, that was written in uh, 500 A.D. That's pretty old compared to today. And so I take that and I translate it into English. And then about 10 years later, somebody comes along and they said, you know, we have found... another manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew, and it dates around uh, 200 A.D. Now, question, which one is likely to be more reliable? All all things being equal, which one is more likely to be more accurate? Huh? The early one, 200. Why? Why? It's closer to the events that it's describing, okay? The, the, The further you get away from the events... You want to try to find what's closer to the events, right? And so some translations used manuscripts that were available, that they had at the time, and they translated from those. But since that has happened, other manuscripts have been found that are earlier and closer to the time. And that is why that's why they're called modern translations, because... Um, like the English Standard Version, uh, New International Version, um, New King James Version. It, it, it could go on and on. Newer translations are based upon manuscripts that are earlier, that, that, that have, have been discovered and are earlier and closer to the events. But still, that, adds, okay, that explains that, I hope. But then that causes a question, doesn't it? It causes us to say, well, wait a minute then. Why was it added... Why was it added in the, let's say, the manuscript of 500 A.D.? Why did somebody just add that? Why did they do that? And so, since I'm not smart enough to know why, I had to look to somebody who was <laughs> smart enough to know, okay? Ernest, Ernest Lohmeyer, uh, he has done one of the most scholarly and exhaustive studies on the Lord's Prayer. And here's what he says. He says this... Uh, this phrase uh, that we are looking at, this doc, which is called a doxology, it's just a, you know, a concluding praise. This doxology was included because of the Jewish custom of ending all daily prayers with a brief doxology. He believes that the Jewish Christians in Syria began to repeat the Lord's Prayer daily with the customary addition of a doxology finally adding it to their version of the New Testament, which then influenced other ancient versions. So there's nothing, this, this addition of this that shows up in the later translations, there's nothing nefarious or evil or, you know, some kind of evil contriving that was going on of like, let's throw this in there, let's throw this in there. No, but anything like that, okay? It was more out of customary, according to Ernest Lomar, more of the customary, you, you, you finish this prayer and then pronounce a doxology. 
And that's really what this, this phrase is. It's a doxology. So here, here, here's, here's the way we'll wrap this up. It is certainly appropriate to conclude the prayer this way. There's nothing wrong. In other words, just a moment ago we were saying it would be wrong to pray our mother and not our father. That would be wrong, <laughs> okay? But would it be wrong to close this prayer with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. There is nothing wrong with that additional praise. Look, as long as we are aware that it was not part of the original words of Jesus. It was not part of the earliest manuscripts. So as long as, long as, we, as, long as we understand that, there's nothing wrong at all with ending the prayer that way. Nor is there anything wrong with modern tra- translations that would omit that since it was not in the earliest manuscripts. I hope, I hope that makes sense. I hope that, you know, if it doesn't, just think about it for a while. Um, and, 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 you know, it, yeah, it, you know, it really comes down to, you know, things like evidence and, and uh, you know, uh, I, love, I love reading about, you know, the manuscript evidence and those kind of things. And there's, there's nothing here that we talked about that, that shakes our confidence in the Bible. There's nothing at all like that. It's just, you know, we need to be honest about these things. You know, we, 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 we need to know what we're talking about and we need to be honest about it because I promise you there are people out there who, who want to undermine everything about the Bible and they want to throw in these things and, to, for a gotcha moment. And so we need to be honest about this and be aware of, uh, of, of what we're talking about. It's about two minutes after eight and so we're past our time. So if you'll stand, we're going we're gonna to conclude with, with prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. You're dismissed.